Well, good morning. Uh, we can do better than that, even though we're a little bit down. We can, we can do much better than that. Good morning. <laughs> well, welcome. And to all those who are watching live right now at home through our live streaming or who will watch later, uh, welcome. Uh, good to have you with us and grateful uh, for your joining us. And uh, yeah, just, just good to be together in whatever, whatever way we're together today. Um, a couple of things I want to mention before we, uh, we jump into the Word together. Um, you know, one of the uh, historic values of Grace Church has been generosity. And we, we just love finding ways to be generous with our time, our lives, our resources, our money. And it's something we talk a lot about un- unapologetically because we think generosity probably displays the grace of, of Christ better than anything else in the world. And so we typically end our year in a couple of ways. One of the things that we, we love doing in December coming into the end of the year, for those of you who are newer to Greece, uh, we have a, a substantial missions family uh, that we, we support. We're grateful for them. They're doing great things. And like all of us here, their lives and ministries are struggling these days under COVID. Uh, I talked to one of our mission staff just this week. We, we had a long conversation, uh, um, uh, and it was Eugene, and, uh, and he was telling me that just in the past number of months, they have, they're down well over $100,000 just because of the change in the value of the euro and the dollar. Uh, not to mention all that's going on. So one of the things that we're going to do is we have a, what we're calling the Big Give. And on December 20th, we're, we're, we're using that Sunday as a Sunday that we would like to ask of you just to go before God and pray about ways that you might be able to be uh, more generous than your normal giving here and ways that you can give. And we're asking you to consider in one of two ways. One is called Big Give Missions. And we're asking God to provide an additional $10,000 that we're going to give to our mission staff. And our missions team will take a look at the needs and they'll allocate it and decide where it's best used. But we would like to bless our mission staff at the end of the year and, and just honor them in a way and, and be generous with them. So if, if God would so lead, we'd encourage you to do so. The other big give is for our big give ministries. You know, God has been so, so faithful to us this year. And even though we had to pull our budget way back, we've been doing really well meeting expenses to income. Coming towards the end of the year, we're about $10,000 behind. And we would love to end the year level. And, and so if, if you're looking for a way to give year-end, we would encourage you to pray about it. Uh, consider giving to one or, or both of these opportunities. Um, also want to mention another annual tradition for us is we're, we're collecting Target cards, $25 car- Target cards that we use to distribute to needy families at Cleveland Elementary. And I think our goal is 80 if I remember correctly. And if you'd be so gracious as to think about that, uh, purchase a couple of cards, uh, get them to Kim, drop them in the offering box, and, and they'll get to where they need to go. One final thing I want to mention. Now that we've been gathering back in here three or four weeks, it is so, so, so easy to just kind of relax and go back to life as normal. And we have a favor to ask of you. are doing so well uh, walking in the door with your masks. We'd like to remind you when we're done, put them back on. <laughs> Last week we were noticing that many of us were just hugging each other. and ma- We get it. 
That's our natural instincts just to kind of relax. We don't want to relax right now. We really want to be wise with this, pay attention to it. It's one of the ways that we're choosing to love each other. And so put your mask on when you leave your, your chair until you're outside. And that would be a, a, a kind thing to do, and we'd, we'd all very much appreciate that. So thank you for having to be dad for a moment. You know, uh, so grateful for, for Brent's prayer because I think peace is something that we all long for in so many ways. You know, when we, when we think about Advent, Advent is a time, it's, it, it's multiple things to us. Advent is, is a time that we look backward to Jesus' first coming to earth and all the stories that surround Jesus' birth. Um, I, I love each year going back and rereading them. They never get old to me. There's just a freshness in going back and rereading all the stories around Jesus' birth. But Advent is also a time to look forward to a second coming, a waiting for his return. You're going to notice in all the Advent readings how many of them are future-oriented. And we talked last week that, that you and I are waiting, not unlike the people in the Old Testament were waiting. They waited for Jesus' first coming. We're waiting for his second coming. But this morning, I want to add a third component to that. Advent is also a time to look inward to the ways that Jesus comes into our lives now. The ways that Jesus is present to us now, the way Jesus meets us in our present moment. And as I was reflecting on that this week, I had the thought that what happens to us while we're waiting may be as important as what we wait for. You see, God is shaping us in our waiting. It's, it's not just about getting to the destination. There's a formation, there's an activity that God is doing in us. And, and what he's doing in us while we're waiting is significant. And so, and so it raises a question. What kind of people ought we to be while we wait? And that's going to be the question that our four passages uh, in, the, in the lectionary this week, all kind of dance around a little bit. I hope you read the passages this week. We're all reading the, the, the using the common lectionary this, this month as a way of just kind of preparing for each week. So if you have your Bibles, let's begin with the first, the first reading found in the book of Isaiah chapter 40. And I'm going to go through the, the two Old Testament passages relatively quickly so we can, we can get to the New Testament passages. But Isaiah begins... Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, and that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Fascinating couple of verses. Historically, Isaiah was speaking to Israel's spiritual leaders. And for those who are familiar with the Old Testament, Isaiah anticipated what was called the Babylonian captivity, where the people of Israel were going to be exiled, taken out of their land, and held in captivity for 70 years. And so Isaiah is speaking to Israel's spiritual leaders, knowing that they will face the difficulty of leading people through forced captivity in Babylon. I mean, imagine you and I have been living six or seven months in COVID. Imagine 70 years. And he's speaking to the leaders of Israel and saying, I want you to bring comfort to my people. Their hard service 
is going to come to an end. And their hard service has been paid for and comfort people by reassuring them that their experience of God's deliverance would double what they experience in God's discipline. So as hard as it would be, the blessing they would experience would double. All the loss and the grief and the sadness, it was a reminder of his grace. Now, ultimately, these these prophets are are wonderful lenses into the future because Isaiah's words ultimately look look to a future time when God's grace would would display in would be displayed in double measure with his first coming and his second coming. First measure, first coming, second measure, second coming. And, And God would deal finally and fully with sin. But while they were in captivity, there were things that needed to be said things that needed to be spoken. And he goes on describing it in verse three, a voice of one calling. In the wilderness, and and here historically he's talking, uh, of course, about their time in Babylon, but we'll later look at it uh, with the passage that, that was read a few moments ago. In the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That is what they are to be busy doing during this time of captivity. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all the people will see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Here's what Isaiah says. I want you to remind people of something. I want you to remind them that nothing will stand in the way of God's glory being revealed for all to see. No matter how difficult this season in in captivity is, I want you to remind them and remind them and remind them that nothing is going to stand in the way. That eventually God's glory will be displayed. God's glory will be revealed. And so prepare the way for that. He goes on, a voice says, verse 6, cry out. And Isaiah said, "What, what should I cry? All people are like grass. And all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field and the grass withers and the flowers fail because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fail, but the word of our God endures forever. Not only do I want want you to remind them that nothing will stand in the way of God's glory, remind everyone that their lives are transient and temporary. fragile. They come and they go. They're like grass, flowers in the field. And then remind them that the word of God endures forever. The thing that you can count on, the thing that is trustworthy and eternal, find your comfort and your confidence in the promises of God because that will last. Verse 9, you who bring good news to Zion... Go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. And he gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those who have young. 
The third thing they're to remind their people of is remind everyone that Christ is coming to rule as king. He's coming to rule as king in the full display of his greatness and his power. But he will lead people with the gentleness of a shepherd. You see, people didn't associate power with gentleness. They associated power with brutality and abusiveness. But unlike others, this Jesus who who rules as king will lead with the gentleness of a shepherd. I don't know if you've ever read the book of Isaiah. I love the richness of Isaiah. Just wonderful images and pictures. Now turn to Psalm 85. That was the psalm that we looked at this week. Psalm 85 is what is referred to as a psalm of community lament. Last week we looked at Psalm 80. It was an individual lament. This is a community of lament. This was a lament that was spoken by the community of people gathered. Uh, The background story to Psalm 85, it was likely some type of national catastrophic event that had been experienced by all the nation. Doesn't name it. But all of them had experienced it and it brought them to their knees. And so they cried out to God for deliverance and God answered them. And and so the psalmist begins with a statement about God's goodness to them in the past. You, Lord, showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of uh, Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people and covered all their sins. You set aside all your wrath and turned from your fierce anger. You know, I read verses like this. And and my thought kind of races to a place that all of us in this room have memories of times in our lives when God provided for us in gracious ways far beyond what we deserved. We cried out to God at a time and, and, and God stepped in, he intervened, he provided, and in spite of our sin, in spite of, of even if we created the mess we were in, he was forgiving. And he showed favor to us. He was gracious. He was kind. You know, I I think of that often when I reflect upon my years as a husband and a father. And over the years, the ways that I've disheartened Verna or disheartened one of my kids by something I said or did or by something I didn't say or should have said. (laughs) Um, And I I look back at those moments, those times when I didn't love or lead my family as I hoped. And yet, by God's grace today, God and my family, they're forgiving. Um, I think about it as my, in my experience as a pastor over 40 years and all the mistakes and stupid things I've done and, and yet God and people are forgiving. Um, See, the memories of God's goodness inspire us to keep turning to God. You know, we reflect upon those moments and they bring us back to our knees. And and so the psalmist cried out for God's favor again, verse four, restore us again, O God, our Savior. Put your displeasure towards us. Put away your displeasure. In the same way you did it in the past, do it again. 
Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger through all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your unfailing love, Lord, and grant us your salvation. As we learned last week, lament is the heart cry of Advent, looking to God to deliver us from the adversity we're facing. And this language, restore us again. Show us your unfailing love. That's the cry of Advent. Longing for for, for God's unfailing love to just kind of pour into our lives. And and then the psalm pivots. And from the honesty of lament, the psalmist finds peace and hope. Verse 8. These are great verses, by the way. I will listen to what God the Lord says. He promises peace to his people, his faithful servants. But let them not turn to folly. Surely his salvation is near those who fear him, that his glory may dwell in our land. You see, as the psalmist experienced the peace of God's presence, he looked to a future day when God's kingdom and God's glory would flourish. Hope. This this was not the end of the story. He could look forward to a day when when God's kingdom would abound and flourish. But but I want you to notice something about these verses, and it's significant. They're future-oriented. But while the psalmist is describing the future, he spoke in the present tense. Now, why why is that even worth noting? Friends, our hope in the future must shape our present lives. See, it must shape the kind of people that we choose to be. Shape what we value and shape what we aspire to. Otherwise, the hope becomes somewhat of an abstract thing, but it needs to press into our present. And so he goes on in verse 10 with these moving images, love and faithfulness, They meet together. Now again, he's describing the future, but in present terms. Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. I love this next image. Faithfulness just springs forth from the earth. And righteousness looks down from heaven. The Lord will indeed give what is good and our land will yield its harvest. Righteousness goes before him and prepares the way for his steps. Well, with that background, let's turn to Mark chapter one, a passage that the Townsend family read for us this morning. And we'll hover here for a few minutes. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make straight paths for him. You recognize those words, don't you? In part, they're coming from Isaiah 40. But here's what's unique about Mark. Unlike Matthew and Luke, and I'm sure you've noticed this before, unlike Matthew and Luke, Mark didn't describe Jesus' birth. Mark begins with Jesus' adulthood. 
And so the marker for the Gospel of Mark is not Jesus' early years, it's John the Baptist. And John the Baptist played a prominent role in introducing people to Jesus. Uh, Verse 4, and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. Now, to, to just name the obvious, John certainly wasn't a model of refined Jewish culture. John was a scraggly looking prophet who ate bugs. Um, He showed up from the wilderness looking like Grizzly Adams with the audacity to confront an entire Jewish culture. And John called people to repent for their sins and confess the ways that they had failed to obey God. I kind of think of John like a street preacher in Atlanta, standing on a corner just shouting and screaming at people walking by all the time. But rather than ignoring, crowds of people were curious about this prophet from the wilderness. There was something about him that drew people to him. And so crowds found their way to John, and and many were so moved by his call to a confession, they repented and were baptized by John. And, and, And we would describe John today as one of the unique, colorful, once-in-a-lifetime people never to be forgotten. My guess is that most people who were alive at that moment told stories about John the Baptist the rest of their lives. You just don't meet people like that too often. And yet this John kind of came in and, and he was one of those unique, colorful people. But equally never to be forgotten was who he directed people to. Verse 7, and this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I. Don't, don't be too impressed by me, John says. So, someone after me is coming who is, who is greater than me. In fact, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. You see, like Old Testament prophets before him, John, a New Testament prophet, pointed people to someone beyond him, someone greater than him. You know, John the Baptist, he became one of the models for over the next couple of hundred years after John, what became became known as an ascetic way of life. Or, or some have, have called it a monastic way of life. And, and both the ascetic way of life and the monastic way of life were known for their commitments to follow God by means of a rigorous self-discipline and self-denial. And so like John the Baptist, these, these prophets, these people, they withdrew from society to live in the wilderness or later in monasteries, and they devoted themselves to lives of voluntary isolation, voluntary seclusion, and simplicity. And you can read their stories for hundreds of years, often called the desert fathers or the desert mothers. 
Now, the good news is we're not called to move to a wilderness or to the monastery. Although, sounds pretty attractive at times. Uh, But I'm struck, and I, I had not had this thought until this week. I'm struck by the ways John is a needed model for us today. Let me share a couple of observations. In our contemporary culture, devoted followers of Christ's, of a follower of Jesus, are more and more voices calling in the wilderness. Are we not? Um, strange sounding voices to a secular culture that is bent on ignoring Jesus or dismissing Jesus as irrelevant to their lives or rejecting them altogether. Friends, the reality is you and I may be as out of place in our culture today as John was in his. And more and more, our voices are those voices coming out of a wilderness that has an unfamiliar sound and ring to it. And like John, and and this may be an interesting thought for you, like John, our role is to clear the way for Jesus. You know, too often I think we assume the burden of converting people, that our role is to convert people. Maybe it would be far better for us to thoughtfully look for ways to remove the obstacles that stand in people's way to Jesus. That that becomes our role. How do we enter into conversations and listening to their stories and understanding why they are resistant and and through lives of compassion and generosity, we clear the way for people to find their way for Jesus. But also like John, and this is going to push some of us, also like John, we must be prepared to confront sin. You know, sin is not a popular topic today. Um, In fact, often when we speak about it, even as followers of Jesus, we speak in euphemistic terms. And we describe sin as poor judgment or a misstep or a wound or baggage or brokenness. And we we, kind of soften the language and the edge of sin. Or... On the other end of the spectrum, we speak about sin in arrogant and angry terms from a posture of judgment. Um, You know, friends, as we read the scriptures, and as you and I know from our personal experience, sin in our lives and in our communities must be confronted if people and our world is to ever experience the presence of Christ. And confronting sin involves a few things. It involves honesty in naming things. It involves truth-telling. It involves confession. It involves repentance. But here's where I want to press. Because most of us are all too willing when, when we hear a list like that, honesty, truth-telling, confessing, repentance, and we're going, yes, 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 yes. People need that. Uh, 
Confronting sin begins best close to home. With us. See, we're to name our sin to ourselves. We name our sin to God. We, we name it to those we've hurt and offended. And in the naming, we invite God to cleanse from our lives anything that hinders Christ coming into our lives with freedom. In other words, confession clears the way for Jesus and our lives. And think of it like this. People who know and follow Jesus you and me, we ought to be the most comfortable confronting and confessing our own sin. And if not, do we really have any business calling out the sin in others that we see? See, it happens best close. So what I wanna do for just a couple of minutes is I wanna take a moment and I wanna lead us in a prayer of confession. And so just, just kind of pray with me or you just pray quietly and just follow along as I, as I kind of walk us through a prayer and then we'll pivot to our next passage quickly. God, our, my sins are too heavy to carry sometimes. They're too real to hide and they're too deep to undo. And so for just a moment, I'd like you to take just a moment quietly, not out loud. I want you just to name the sins that are heavy in your life right now. What are those habits, those addictions, those thoughts, those emotions, those things that just seem to just kind of lurk in your life? And just name them, just name them. And Father, now we, we take these things that we've named and forgive what our lips sometimes tremble to name. What our hearts can no longer bear and what has become a consuming fire of judgment. And in this quiet moment, I acknowledge you as my Savior and my Lord. Set me free from a past I cannot change and open me to a future in which I can be changed. Grant me the grace to grow more and more in your likeness and image through Jesus, the light of the world. Amen. Let's quickly turn to 2 Peter chapter 3. Peter kind of brings it all together for us. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years are like a day. Do not forget. Peter says you, you need to remember that God's experience with time is very different than ours. He is not bound by time. He lives in the eternal now. The eternal now. A couple of observations about 
not forgetting this. Friends, every moment of our lives, that means every conversation, every experience express the echo of eternity. Every moment of our lives express or reflect uh, this, this echo of eternity. You know, I find that waiting is hard for us because the things that you and I wait for, we normally want now. And so our sense of urgency bursts an impatience, if not panic, when we don't see the results right away. The, the beauty of understanding this eternal now and the character of God, knowing that God doesn't operate on our timetable, lightens the serious, seriousness, the intensity, the urgency that you and I can bring to present moments and relationships. We bring too much pressure. And when we recognize that God is not operating under that kind of pressure, it just kind of lifts it. It lightens it. But there's a second observation that over, over the, the, the time, we are rooted to a rich historical tradition that brings perspective to our present moments. Um, you know, you and I often find ourselves stuck in our present moment in time. We're just consumed by this moment and what's going on in this moment, the present is all we can see. I just finished a, an excellent novel last night uh, called This Tender Land. And if you are a reader of novels, you'll understand this. I always reach a place in a novel where I can't stop. I'm now so engaged in the novel that I, I can't stop reading. I can't turn the page fast enough in my desire to see how the story unfolds and ends. I got there last night, and I just kept reading, kept reading, got later and later and later, but I couldn't stop. I had to finish it. In all of our lives, friends, there's a day when we realize that the turning the page on the present is the best thing we can do. Um, because we realize there's so much more to our story than the page that we're stuck on. Uh, you know I'm using Bonhoeffer's book uh, during Advent this year. I want to read a letter that Bonhoeffer wrote to his parents. It was written from Tegel Prison in December of 1943, and, and he writes this, Dear parents, I, I don't need to tell you how much I long for freedom and for you all. Uh, his present moment was in prison. But over the decades, you have provided for us such an incomparably beautiful Christmases that my thankful remembrance of them is strong enough to light up this dark Christmas. Only such times can really reveal what it means to have a past and a heritage that is independent of chance and the changing of times. And here's, here's the sentence I want you to hear. The awareness of a spiritual tradition that reaches over the centuries gives one a feeling of security in the face of all present difficulties. The fact that we're connected to something that spans the centuries and will span the future, we're a part of a spiritual heritage that is much larger and more weighty than any of our present moments. Or think of it like this, we carry on for others what others carried on for us. And it brings perspective, verse 8. So do not forget this one thing, dear friends, with the Lord a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. 
The Lord is not slow about keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Peter is speaking into something that we still hear today. Uh, back earlier in the chapter, there were people who were saying this, where, where's this coming, he promised? Ever since our ancestors died, uh, everything goes on as it, it has since the beginning of creation. Ever thought that? You know, we've been talking about Christ coming forever. When's it, when's it going to happen? When's it gonna, and, and, and people scoff and dismiss it. And, and, and so Peter says, okay, let's be crystal clear about the Lord's slowness. Understand he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Be clear on something. God's slowness is a sign of his heart, his longing for everyone to find their life in him. He doesn't want anyone to perish. And so he's slow. He's over time. And all of us have stories of family members or friends who are not interested in Christ or friends who've walked away from Christ. And we find hope in knowing that God continues to work beyond the present moment and the fact that a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day is really good news. See, the present moment is just a chapter. The story is far from over. Uh, as the pages continue to turn, as long as there is time, there is opportunity. And so we wait patiently. But we don't wait forever, verse 10. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. Boy, I read a verse like that and I just so many questions. Another time in study. <laughs> but what's, what's significant is satisfying our curiosity was not Peter's purpose. His purpose is seen in the question he raises in verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? However you interpret the future, whatever language you bring to how you understand how the end times is going to unfold and, and all that's going to take place, the question remains the same. With what you know, What kind of people ought you to be? Far more important than any opinion about the future. Far more important than any theological perspective about the future. What kind of people ought you to be? And so he answers his question. You ought to live holy and godly lives. As you look forward to the day of God and, and speed it's coming. We ought to live holy and godly lives. You know, I suspect that we find statements like this, that we are to live holy and godly lives to be far more intimidating than they are inspiring. They're daunting to us. I also suspect that the picture of what a holy, godly life and what it looks like may be quite different than what Peter had in mind. I want to end with a story of a, another unique, colorful, once-in-a-lifetime person. Someone never to be forgotten who epitomized what Peter calls us to. 
Her name was Naomi. And I'll always remember this picture. I, I, I'll always remember Naomi this way. I love the backstory. I met, uh, I met Naomi on my first trip to Ghana with Ash. I think it was about 10 years ago now. Those of you who are part of the Grace family, uh, you know that Ash leads a ministry in Ghana called Young Leaders International, YLI. And, and over the years, as I made multiple trips to, to Ghana, I, I just fell in love with Naomi. I learned to admire her. Everyone did. did. Uh, Naomi died suddenly about three weeks ago. Uh, in her mid-50s, with this unbelievable legacy around her. And, and she was one of the most loved leaders in the YLI family. She was funny. I mean, you just look at her. She was funny. She was full of joy. She was earthy. She was colorful. Um, she dubbed herself Queen Mother of YLI. And while her life had been tragic, Naomi displayed a tireless, Jesus-shaped love for chiefs and criminals, juvenile delinquents, pastors, Maybe in the same breath, huh? <laughs> Just thought about that. Criminals, juvenile delinquents, pastors. Um, that's another one. We'll keep going. Um, for another day. <laughs> another, she just had these people in her life. As she opened her home to abandoned children, she began a school for poor children in her village. Uh, Naomi's life was surrounded by stories like these. I want to read something to you from the magazine I took this photo from, a recent magazine from YLI. And Ash did a really cool thing in tribute to Naomi. He, he went back and he captured a number of blogs over the past 15 years that told some of her story. And I want to read one to you. Naomi told me that the chief I met, Nana Kofi, had died. Years earlier, Nana Kofi attended church, but not yet as a Christian. He took a second wife, as was common in the culture, and sadly was no longer welcomed at that church. Not a single person from the church ever followed up with him. He was ostracized and isolated. Over, pa over the past months, as Nana was dying, he and Naomi had become friends, and he told Naomi how lonely and brokenhearted he was. Neither his brother nor his children had visited him, and the church had rejected him. And in desperation, he'd ask a pastor to pray for him. And the pastor said he would for $50. What Naomi told me next is what we call incarnational or love evangelism. Naomi visited and cared for him sometimes two or three times a day. And Nana told her that he had never experienced that kind of love. And as he lay on his bed, Nana wept because of the love that Naomi showed him. She taught Nana Kofi how to pray, how to express his pain to God. And Naomi led Nana Kofi to Jesus. And every day they continued to meet and pray as he physically deteriorated. And his final words were, Jesus, Jesus, receive my soul, receive my soul. And Naomi was invited to speak at the chief's funeral very unusual in that culture. And she spoke of God's love for Nana 
And she said this, it's not how you start, it's how you end. And she shared the gospel. Nana Kofi's son is now living with Naomi. The young man stands no chance of avoiding Jesus. <laughs> A holy, godly life. That's who we're to be. So join me in prayer. Father, what kind of people ought we to be while we wait for Jesus' return? Thank you for the people who prepared the way for the coming of Jesus into our lives. May we prepare the way for others. And Father, may those we encounter experience us as once in a lifetime, never to be forgotten people who have no chance of avoiding Jesus because they see Jesus alive in us. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, after reading these passages, what a, what a great pivot to the Lord's table. You know, because of all that we have in Jesus, the hope we have in Jesus and his first coming and the promise of his second coming, this opportunity to live like Naomi. What a great opportunity for us to come to the table and just say that's, thank you for the life you've given me. Thank you for coming into my life, for, for the way that's there. I wanna live. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And so this morning, we're gonna come to the table and we're gonna do it very simply. Um, elders will come up here and they'll, they'll serve you so you don't have to reach into things and, and just come one by one and keep your social distancing as we've been doing all along. And as you come, just thank Jesus, thank God for the life you have because of Jesus. But as we've been encouraging all along as we come to the Lord's table, this is a great moment to reaffirm your commitment, reaffirm our commitment to live in a particular way, as, as Paul said about the Lord, said we're to do this until he returns. <laughs> so it's, it's a time for us to commit ourselves to the type of people we ought to be, godly and holy people, until he returns. So I'm gonna have a word of prayer, and then, men, if you'll come up and get ready, and then you can come to the table as you're, as you're ready, as you're prepared. Father, Thank you for the range of these scriptures in Isaiah and Psalm and Mark and 2 Peter and these wonderful themes and threads that we see. Thank you for people like John and Naomi and the people who have stepped into our lives and who paved the way for us to find our way to Jesus. And so Father, as we come, it's with grateful hearts, glad hearts, but Father, we also come with resolute hearts, affirming our desire to live holy and godly lives until you come. And so Father, thank you for this moment. And we bless you in Jesus' name, amen. So just come when you're, come when you're ready.